News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. As the war continues in Ukraine, we hear more and more stories about people who have managed to escape. It is not easy. What they had to leave behind is horrible. And many more people are being forced to evacuate all the time. Like our next guest, Svetlana Prestupa was born and raised in Kharkiv, but was forced to evacuate when that city was attacked by the Russian military. She had to travel right across Ukraine with her family before arriving in London as a refugee. But her family, however, is still stuck in Poland. Let's uh, talk to Svetlana now about what has been going on the last few weeks. Svetlana, thank you for being with us this morning. Hello, thank you for having me. First off, how is your family doing? Oh, they are doing okay. I'm really grateful to one Polish family that offered us help. Uh, This is an amazing story. Just a couple of years ago, one of my sisters attended a conference in Warsaw, the capital of Poland, and she met one girl there. So they are not really friends, just people who met at a conference. And um, recently this girl has contacted my sister and said that her mother-in-law has an apartment and several free rooms, and we are welcome to come. And um, before coming to London, I actually also spent some time in Poland, in Warsaw, with this amazing family who helped us. That is amazing. As you said, just somebody she met at a conference, and and look how significant that was a few years later. Yeah, That's amazing. So, Svetlana, what happened? When did you and your family realize that it was time to leave, that you had to go? I believed that we wouldn't leave our city because we wanted to stay. We wanted to, like, stand our ground and show that we love our city, love our country, and we want to stay here. But uh, we spent nine days there, and Kharkiv was bombed heavily. And I guess I started realizing that it's just a matter of time when our building could be hit because less and less buildings remained okay there. Uh, And um, a couple of days before we left, um, a a rocket fell not far from our home. It destroyed a lot of things around and I had a walk and I could see it all with my own eyes. And I guess I remember one particularly scary night when we could hear the fighter jet over our heads. It wasn't the first time, but it was super close that time. And we live on the last floor of our apartment building, which people say is the most dangerous place. We couldn't go to any shelters because elevators didn't work for safety reasons, and my mom walks with a cane, so it was like literally impossible for her to go down and up. That's why we just stayed in the apartment, in the corridor, trying to cover our heads with our hands. And that night it got super scary. And that that was the moment when I realized that probably it's time to save our lives. 
And so how did you leave then? Did you, did you get help in leaving? Did you pack up your car? What happened? We do not own a car and transporting was actually quite a problem for us. It was and still is possible to uh, flee from Kharkiv by train. But at that time, there were so many people there. Just the railway station was full of um, scared people. And I heard some stories from my friends that you could spend the whole day at the railway station and still not get on the train And this wasn't really an option for us because first I was afraid to spend the whole day at the railway station, which could possibly be the target for rockets, as for example, recently in uh, one of the cities. Oh my gosh, I'm so nervous. No, it's okay. Listen, it is understandable, Svetlana, given what you have been through over the last three or four weeks. (laughs) So, So you moved on to London. So what's going to happen now, Svetlana? Are you going to stay there? Do you hope to go back? Like, Do you have any future plans here? I hope that I can um, get back to some kind of normal life here. I mean, start working, start earning money to support myself, my family, my country. And when Ukraine wins, I would like to come back rebuild everything and of course leave at home because I I love my city, my country, my home. I miss the people that are still there and I'm really looking forward to going back. Do you think enough like other countries have been doing enough Svetlana? Like what would you like to see? That's a hard question Mm -hmm. and a bit provocative I'd say. Um, I see that many countries are being super friendly. For example, yeah, I can judge for what I've seen with my eyes. Uh, I'm really thankful to Polish people because they are lending their hand a lot. And here people in London are very friendly and welcoming. Uh, I don't have many clothes with me, so the whole neighborhood is trying to find something to help me and with some other issues, and I'm really thankful to Canada as well. So journalists from your country have been in touch with me, asking um, how I'm doing, and so on. So that's what I've experienced. But I know that many countries are helping us now, and I'm grateful for that. Well, I'm glad to hear that. But you know what? There's always more, I think, that can be done. So Svetlana, stay safe. I hope your family stays safe. And hopefully we can check back in with you in the future, okay? Yeah. Thank you. Take care. Thank you so much. That is Svetlana Pristipa, who's a Ukrainian refugee currently in London, while the rest of her family, as you heard, is in Poland. And You know what just gets me about that story? So many things get me about that story. But just this idea, she pointed out that they're safe right now in Poland all because of just a casual meeting her sister had at a conference a couple of years ago. And not friends, she said, just somebody she met at a conference. And that person had reached out when all this started and said, you know what, we can help you out with a place to say. Like, who who knows, like, that's going to happen in a couple of years from a casual meeting that you have, Right. But people are helping, and that's important. And I know Canada is getting ready to bring Ukrainian refugees here, too. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi.
Well, given that it is a long weekend, there is, of course, a lot of travel that is going on. And of course, with no more COVID restrictions, for the most part, people are going all over the place and they need to take a ferry. Compounding the issue here is the fact that there have been mechanical issues. So there's long delays, as you've been hearing in the news. And then there's also a staffing shortage. Lots of retirements. Are they recruiting enough people? So we thought, let's check in and talk about that. Eric Eric McNeely joins us now, the president of the BC Ferry and Marine Workers Union. Eric, thank you for being with us. Morning. Thanks for having me. Boy, I'm sure you've been hearing a lot about what's going on. Does it surprise you to hear about all these delays at uh, BC Ferries? Uh, it doesn't surprise me. Uh, you know, we, as, as someone who lives on an island here, we, we always uh, hear, hear about uh, sailings on long weekends, and uh, this, this weekend's no different. What's been going on? Like, was this something that you could have said, listen, this is going to happen pretty soon? Yeah, we've been looking at, uh, you know, a demographic shift within our workforce uh, over the, the years, and we've been raising the alarm about it. It's, you know, also within the industry itself, but it's an aging workforce, and, uh, you know, uh, it's hard to replace people with the skill sets that we normally uh, look for in our work sites and you know a captain or a chief engineer on a ferry takes about 15 years to get that education level as a combination of theoretical and practical experience and you're not just uh, hiring someone off the street for those roles which is a a difficult challenge and uh, it's one we're seeing uh, come into effect now. Right so Eric it sounds like what you're saying is that we should have or you know BC Ferries should have been thinking about this years ago to get people ready to take over. Yeah, it's and uh, it's not just BC Ferries; it's industry wide, you know. And uh, Mariners is a low visibility career; you don't really hear about it in post secondary schools. There's not a lot of uh, recruitment uh, to get people into the uh, post secondary schools uh, for marine educations. And the post secondary educations in Canada to train Mariners has has been reducing over the years, which means that our output is now less than the uh, the amount of retirements or people choosing new careers. Okay, so what does it take then to train a mariner? Can you talk about that process a little bit? Yeah, so if someone's uh, you know, leaving high school and they want to go uh, become a captain or a chief engineer, there's sort of two uh, ways they can go. The first way would be you go straight to post-secondary school. You get into a multi-year program, uh, you know, like you would with a bachelor's degree, that kind of thing. And then... Uh, there's a combination of theoretical and practical experience, much like uh, you know uh, we consider uh, typical trades, like uh, electricians and that kind of thing. Um, the other way is uh, just people move into the industry itself, uh, and then they gain the the practical experience, and then they're able to do sort of a, a piecemeal approach moving forward, uh, using their practical experience and then taking. Uh, individual courses as opposed to sort of an intensive program um, through a post-secondary institution. Now, that sounds like quite a process, Eric. So the getting that practical experience, do, do they make it easy for somebody who, say, was an electrician in some other area to move over to BC Ferries and get that practical experience? Well, uh, like most things that are regulated by the federal government, it is not super easy to transfer skills from one industry to another. Aha. Uh-huh. So, so that does make it slower for sure. Right. Because that, do you think they should loosen that up though in order to get more people doing this? Well, I certainly think there's ways to find efficiencies. There is a, you know, you want to be careful, I suppose, about um, 
increasing speed and reducing quality. And, and Candor produces some of the best mariners around. And uh, that's something that, that as a Canadian mariner myself, we're, we're quite proud of. Uh, and there is always a little bit of a concern that if, if you go too fast, you won't, you won't do it very well. Right, but if we yeah, continue doing it at this pace, are we going to continue to have these problems? Yes. Okay, simple answer there. So then what do we do <laughs> then, Eric? How do we fix this? Well, I think there needs to be a holistic approach um, to, to uh, shipping in Canada. You know, we have three coasts. Uh, I've worked on most of them. And uh, what you'll see quite often is there'll be different uh, players within the industry providing different levels of support to their employees. So uh, a lot of private industry will say, look, um, you're, you want to move ahead in your career, we'll support you in your time off, we'll give you time off, we'll pay for your school, we'll give you a reimbursement once you complete your courses and you're able to move through. Um, that's a fairly effective way, but it does uh, have uh, different players within the marine industry sort of competing uh, against each other once the people are completed the process. I think if there was government funding, provincially and federally, that uh, supported education, supported uh, time off for education, it would go a long way to helping people in the marine industry already advance their careers. Those people that I was talking about sort of in the, mm-hmm. the joint for the, you know, and doing the practical work and are looking to do the theoretical to upgrade their certificates of competency. You know, an example I would give was uh, I had to do a, a training and leadership course uh, through Transport Canada as part of my marine education. It's a week-long course. doesn't sound like it'd be too difficult. But because I have to book myself off of work, uh, pay for a hotel because the schools are not near where I live, and uh, also pay for the course, one week put me back about $3,000. And that, that can be a barrier uh, for someone who has uh, young children uh, or uh, people who, who are in uh, a job that doesn't have guaranteed income. Right. Okay. So then is BC Ferries listening to this, Eric? Like, is, is there progress being made on this front? What's happening? Yeah. So uh, Ferries has been reinvesting within the, in their education uh, program. Uh, it's it's not as wholesome as I think it probably needs to be. Uh, I look around the coast of BC and, you know, other organizations, uh, C-SPAN, Lafarge, uh, they have programs where they're, they book people out of work, uh, pay for like provide them salary while they're in school, which makes it, you know, their ability to pay a mortgage or or rent. And then uh, when they complete their courses, uh, they get a reimbursement for the value of the course. So, uh, but that makes it uh, more accessible for people to advance their careers. Right. Okay. And so, do you have any advice for people this weekend? Is it all about bringing your patience with you? Well, it's, it's a, yeah, bringing your patience is a big one. It, you know, just look around when you're traveling as well. My members who are, who are there, they're at work. They're not at home enjoying the long weekend with their family. And, and you know, mechanical issues happen regardless of the age of the vessels, new or, new or old, there's always something going on. But it, it is my members as well that are working hard to uh, repair mechanical issues. And there is a high level of on-time performance at BC Ferries. And uh, that is predominantly due to, to my membership working as hard as they can uh, with the skills and tools they have. All right. Well, best of luck, Eric. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Eric McNeely is the president of the BC Ferry and Marine Workers Union talking about, yes, issues that they're having right now on the ferries. And part of the problem, as Eric pointed out, is staffing shortages. And these are chronic, they are ongoing, and they are not going to be solved even when we get past this weekend. As you've been hearing in the news, 
lots of delays. Uh, there have been mechanical issues. So do check ahead. From what I can see right now, like there are delays on BC ferries, huge delays. If you are headed southbound at the border, I think P-Surge is 90 minutes right now. It's uh, it's about an hour or 60 minutes or so at the Douglas border crossing. So people are moving around. They're going places. So wherever you're going, you are likely going to have to wait. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about an outbreak of avian flu. It is happening. It's happening in the North Okanagan right now. Now, the BC Minister of Agriculture says it poses an extremely low risk to public health, but they are taking measures for agriculture and the food industry as well. To talk more about that, joining us now is Dr. Louise Monkla, who's a researcher at the Bedford Lab of the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Society. Uh, Louise, Dr. Moncola is an uh, expert in how RNA viruses evolve. Thank you for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me. So what do we know about these avian flu viruses? Because there are quite a few of them, right? That's right. Just like there are influenza viruses that infect people every year, there are influenza viruses that circulate primarily in birds. So there's tons of different subtypes of avian influenza, and normally they circulate in wild birds, and they circulate around those different birds, and they don't usually make them sick. But every now and then, there are strains that can get into poultry and cause problems, and sometimes these make poultry species sick. And there's a couple of types that tend to make poultry more sick, and these are these high pathogenic avian influenza viruses, which are the type that we're seeing in these outbreaks that are currently ongoing. Okay. And so is that why that if, if it's one of those pathogens, then it's dealt with kind of differently? Like what are the options for dealing with that? That's right. We currently don't have great options for dealing with these viruses because they're so transmissible among these poultry birds and they can cause huge economic losses among the poultry industry. So the the main protocol for dealing with these viruses is that if you detect a bird, like a chicken who has one of these viruses in your flock, you generally have to cull or kill the entire flock. And that's currently the main mechanism we have to control the spread of these viruses. Okay. And so does that generally do the trick then? I mean, it seems like a harsh way to do it, but does that generally work? It does generally work. Um, the you know the other option is to basically let these viruses spread and they can spread between farms across countries, you really want to keep these under control. But so, it does it does often work. Right. So when you also let it spread, do you run the risk of something changing about that virus? You do. So these viruses can sometimes switch from a, a low pathogenic phenotype, meaning that they, they don't make birds or humans very sick, to a high pathogenic phenotype. Um, and that's actually pretty easy for the virus to do. And that can sometimes happen during the transition from when these viruses transmit from a wild bird into a domestic bird. Dr. Monkles, there's so much more interest in this research now and what you do because of what we've seen over the last couple of years. I feel like people have a much better, better understanding or awareness anyway of viruses and the damage they can cause. I do think that people are now on high alert for potentially pathogen or potentially pandemic pathogens. People have been talking about avian influenza as a potentially pandemic pathogen for a long time, but I do think the public is now a bit more primed to understand and be interested in viruses and how they're spreading and crossing species barriers. Okay, so when we hear that there is like an avian flu outbreak then, like we have here in our province, what do we need to keep in mind for that? <clears throat> Well, I think that for these avian influenza outbreaks, they're primarily a problem um, that will be dealt with by local agricultural organizations. Generally, the general public doesn't need to be too worried about them. Humans are very rarely uh, infected by avian influenza viruses, but it can happen. 
So I think that this is most important for people who keep birds. So people who have backyard flocks should be on alert to really not allow their poultry to be interacting with wild birds. Um, but this doesn't impact uh, food quality or um, and, and the general public is at very low risk for infection. Right. So we should just know that if we hear about it and read about it, it's being taken care of because it sounds like everybody takes this very seriously. Yeah, most places do take this quite seriously. All right. Good to know. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate that. Dr. Louise Moncla, who's a researcher at the Bedford Lab at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Society, and she's an expert in how RNA viruses evolve. And the reason why we're talking to her is because we have this outbreak of avian flu in the northern part of the Okanagan. The BC Minister of Agriculture has said that it does pose an extremely low risk to public health, but they are implementing health measures for the agriculture industry, the food industry in that area. So they're telling all poultry producers, including backyard poultry owners in the Northern Okanagan, to increase biosecurity practices, be vigilant, and monitor for signs of avian influenza in their flocks. But that sounds like it's always an ongoing issue if you do look after, have any kind of poultry, whether it's a backyard chicken situation or whether you're in the kind of poultry industry too. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, this weekend is quite remarkable. Today is Good Friday, right? Kicking off Easter weekend, leading to Easter Sunday. A lot of people will gather for that. It's also the beginning of Passover. Uh, Also, we're in the middle of Ramadan. So those three events happening at the same time happens on average about once every 33 years. And it is quite remarkable. So we wanted to talk more about that. Joining us this morning is Professor David Seljak, who's a department chair and professor at the University of Waterloo with a specialization in religion, multiculturalism, and identity in the sociology of religion. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, uh, it's wonderful to be here, Simi. This is quite a, a, a weekend, this rarity to see these three major religions celebrating at the same time. Yes, it's, and it's because these are all um, what we call movable feasts. In other words, you know, December 25th, you know it's going to be Christmas, but these feast days move, move around. Now, Easter, which is the commemoration of the death and resurrection of Jesus, is obviously linked to the Jewish feast of Passover, because Jesus was a Jew and he was arrested and executed by the Romans during the Passover festival. But, but Ramadan is unrelated to those two feasts, so it is indeed rare that all three uh, should coincide. So how are they linked, if at all? You mentioned the connection between Easter and Passover. Uh, what are some of the similarities between them? Well, um, you know, I mean, because uh, Jesus was, was Jewish, it took, actually, it took Christians many centuries to kind of admit that. Uh, and uh, those connections have been made a little more closely uh, nowadays. But um, Passover, which this year is from between April 15th and the 23rd, you know, it follows the Jewish calendar, uh, and it, um, it marks the exodus of Israelites from slavery in Egypt. Uh, and it's, uh, so, you know, God visited the Egyptians with ten plagues, and the last one was taking the firstborn, and the angel of death passed over the Jewish households. So um, there's a special meal attached to that festival, the Seder meal, and that's the meal 
that we read about in the Christian Gospels, where Jesus is eating with his disciples. It is the meal where he is betrayed. It's the meal where Christians believe he instituted the Eucharist, the the bread and wine that's eaten during uh, weekly or uh, so celebrations uh, at Mass or at uh, religious services. So it's uh, it's for both Jews and Christians, these are ultimately important uh, holidays and feast days. And what up for people who don't know what Ramadan is all about? Maybe you could explain that as well. Well, Ramadan, yes, it's it's one of the, I mean, it's a, it's quite a, a, a very important holiday uh, for, uh, or I should say feast day for Muslims. It is one of the five pillars of Islam. In other words, if you're a Muslim, this is obligatory. And in fact, it's very widely observed. It's observed by more than 90% of Muslims around the world. Uh, and so it is the commemoration of the Prophet Muhammad's first revelation in 610 AD. He was visited by the angel Gabriel. And uh, so it's celebrated. It's a month-long celebration this year from April 1st to May 1st. And it moves around because of the lunar calendar and the Islamic, the Islamic calendar follows the moon. And um, it's uh, celebrated largely by uh, fasting from food and drink from sunrise to sunset, uh, you know, of course, with exceptions for sick children, you know, for the sick, for children, for breastfeeding mothers, the elderly, other, other such people. Now, while we usually focus on that fasting, it's kind of the public face of Ramadan, uh, it's really a time of prayer and study of the Quran as well. So it's a, a time to build character, to engage in spirituality, to build discipline, it's kind of a, a cleansing of both the body and the soul and a recommitment to one's faith and one's faith community and, and to family as well, because food and drink is, is consumed, you know, during the hours between sunset and dawn. And most uh, Muslim families would come together at the breaking of the fast, the evening meal, which is called an iftar. And these can be quite, um, you know, celebratory and elaborate affairs. It's really quite amazing. So you just described Ramadan, which you said is is marked by more than ninety percent of Muslims around the world. And isn't Passover also the one of the most widely celebrated Jewish holidays? Oh yes, yeah. No, it's foundational. I mean, the it, it celebrates the the story of the um, exodus of Israelites from slavery in Egypt, and after that exodus, they are said to wander in the desert for forty years, according to the Hebrew Bible and settle in the land of, of Canaan, which is, you know, somewhere coterminous with modern-day right. Israel. Um, it's a seven- or eight-day uh, festival. Uh, it's very much family-oriented. Uh, so in terms of the faith, it's foundational because it, it, it gives the people the land. Right. And, you know, for most Jews, attachment to Israel, even if they've never been there, attachment to the land of Israel mm-hmm. is, is very central to their faith. Now, in talking about Easter, so I wanted to ask about Easter. It's the oldest Christian holiday. What does the Easter egg symbolize? (laughs) The Easter egg is actually, um, it's really a pagan symbol of of spring and rebirth. You know, this is how Christianity spread through Europe. There's no mention of the eggs or the Easter bunny in the Bible. Of course Uh, not. What Christianity did, it spread into... Um, territories that uh, had their own religious rituals and symbols, instead of replacing them all, what they did was incorporate them. So the the symbol of the egg was uh, important to various uh, groups, 
uh, it was as, as was the bunny, and and it was the return of spring. But instead of just you know completely pushing them aside, it was incorporated into the Christian celebration of new life, and that's what Easter is about. It's about the death and resurrection, the victory of life over death, and that's what spring is. Winter is kind of a mini death for so many things. Spring is the return of life. Uh, so. The two rituals are connected, but the, it, this is the way that Christianity really worked. It didn't just replace local traditions. Right. It uh, incorporated them. This was fascinating. I cannot thank you enough for joining us on this Good Friday. Thank you for your time. Well, thank you so much, Simi. Appreciate that. To talk to you. Professor David Seljak is a department chair and professor at University of Waterloo, specializes in, obviously, religion, multiculturalism, and the sociology of religion. Such a significant weekend that we have right now. We have Easter happening. We have Passover today. We have the middle of Ramadan that is also happening. And that all of these combined, well, it doesn't happen very often. It's about once every 33 years or so. So all the best to you and yours. This is Mornings with Simi. Right now we're going to talk about a pretty big health issue. It's heart failure. Now it is significant. It is growing in Canada. There's something like 750,000 people living with it, but it doesn't get a lot of attention. There's 100,000 new cases diagnosed each year. So we wanted to learn more about it. In fact, learn on some of the newly approved treatments too for heart disease that are having an impact. Joining us now is Dr. Elizabeth Swigum, who's a cardiologist and heart failure specialist at Royal Jubilee Hospital in Victoria. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me, Simi. Do we pay enough attention to heart failure? Like, what is it exactly? Well, heart failure is a condition that affects, um, as you say, uh, so many people living in Canada, and it actually affects people of all ages. Um, But, you know, the heart is a pump, and it has four chambers. The heart's made up of muscle, it's heart valves and coronary arteries, and any one part of that, if it's not healthy, can lead to heart failure. So if, uh, you know, if you look at heart failure and, and what can affect it, actually many things can, can lead to heart failure. Okay, like what? So if you have a heart attack, um, then there could be damage to the heart muscle. Um, heart muscle problems can also be hereditary. Or if there's heart value problems, that can lead to, to heart failure as well. And if the heart's not functioning, that's often associated with symptoms. So people living with heart failure can develop symptoms of fatigue, shortness of breath, either with activity or rest. And that's due to the increased pressure or backup of blood within your body that isn't getting pumped as it should. Right. So those are the symptoms that, that people would experience and, and hopefully seek treatment for. Right. You said hopefully there. But Dr. Swigum, are we getting better at identifying heart failure and not kind of waiting for uh, something more, like something worse to happen before we treat it? So unfortunately, uh, the vast majority of patients who get diagnosed with heart failure, it's in the emergency department. And so their very first experience uh, leads to that hospitalization, which ultimately is when they're getting diagnosed. Um, We would want people to get diagnosed earlier, and certainly there's a number of barriers to to getting that diagnosis. Um, When it comes to the diagnosis, however, 
um, there are a couple of things that can, can lead to an earlier diagnosis and even a special blood test available in British Columbia all over can help identify whether that shortness of breath you're experiencing might be due to the heart or other causes. And, and then there's other tests like an echocardiogram or an ultrasound of the heart that looks at your heart function, the heart valves, and what we call the ejection fraction or the percentage of blood that your heart pumps with each beat. Right. And I understand there's a newly approved treatment as well for this. Yeah. So there are treatments. You know, the, the good news for patients who get diagnosed with heart failure um, is to know that there are medications and there are investigations that can help with the diagnosis and treatment for heart failure. Um, Over the past several decades, we've developed several medical therapies that can help improve the quality of life, but also the survival, the length of life that people are living. Um, Ultimately, in the past, a lot of those um, therapies were for patients who had reduced heart function, or what we call reduced ejection fraction. Recently, however, there was a newly published trial that showed that there's therapy even with higher ejection fractions. So now we are um, meeting some of that unmet need of patients with heart failure despite their ejection fraction. So it really expands the scope of the therapies that we can offer people. Right. But what do you really, you really need, I guess, is for people to be diagnosed with this, just not in the emergency room. Yeah, you know, and, and, and I know that you've done some features on this before, but certainly access to care is a at a crisis level all over Canada, but in, in special parts of uh, British Columbia, it's even worse. Um, primary care is an excellent place to diagnose heart failure. And then specialist care is often involved with patients who are complex. They have multiple problems. And oftentimes, it's a very complex diagnosis, and people need help navigating all the complexities of the diagnosis and the management. So we need a team around these people. I was wondering, too, do we need to, as ourselves, to, as prospective patients, need to take those symptoms that you talked about more seriously and not just dismiss them? Yeah, you know, I think that if someone is living with symptoms of shortness of breath or fatigue or they're unable to keep up like they once were before, um, you know, sometimes we we live in a bit of denial and we're like, oh, it's my age. But in fact, um, being heart healthy involves eating well, exercising, but also having a regular review of, of any symptoms that might be new or different for you. And And hopefully that would be with your primary care physician if you're fortunate to have a, a family doctor, but also not delaying going to the emergency department if you're really breathless. Certainly there's lots that can be done outside of an emergency department. And and therapies, some of the therapies that we're talking about can have an impact even within 18 days statistically. So there is a reason not to delay um, once the diagnosis is made to get on the proper therapy and, and uh, improve symptoms and prevent hospitalization. Excellent advice. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you. And, you know, if your listeners want to read more, there's information on heart and stroke um, to help give some further guidance. There absolutely is. All right. Thank you for that. Thank you for your interest.